Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. There has never been a shortage of people decrying the state of Canadian democracy, and one of the chief accusations has been that party discipline is strangling Parliament. There just isn't enough opportunity for MPs to speak openly and without fear of retribution, either in legislature, legislatures or even outside Parliament. Many argue that the stranglehold chokes innovation, party renewal, and, in the case of majority parties, bolsters prime ministers even when they hardly deserve it. But how did it come to this? Was there ever a golden age when Canadian parliamentarians could rival their colleagues in Congress, in the British House of Commons, or in the Assemblée Nationale in France? How did Canada come to this situation? My guest today has done extraordinary work in trying to find the answers to those questions. He is Jean-François Godbout, professor of political science at the Université de Montréal, and he has just published Lost on Division, Party Unity in the Canadian Parliament, a new book by the University of Toronto Press. I reached him at his office in Montreal. Jean-François Godbout, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, I feel honored to talk about my book to the uh, listener of uh, the Champlain Society uh, podcast. Jean-François, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. What happened on December 6th, 1921? Well, it's the, the day of the 1921 election. Uh, this election is uh, particular because it's the first time that a third party, uh, the Progressive Party, elected a significant number of candidates to the House of Commons. Up to that point, you only had two major parties in Parliament, the Liberals and the Conservative. It's also significant because uh, this party finished with more seats than the Conservative Party. Uh, note that the Liberals won the election, so uh, the first opposition party was a a new party, the progressive, that uh, that arrived at that time in, in, in our history. So uh, it's important because after this point, uh, there has always been enough members of third parties elected in the House of Commons, so that for a long time, Canada has been considered uh, by political scientists a two-and-a-half party system, meaning that there's the opposition between the liberals and conservatives, but also uh, with uh, third parties, uh, the half, if you will, and later on, as we as we know in recent history in the 1990s, uh, we've we've went into a full-blown multi-party system uh, with the arrival of reforms in Bloc Québécois. But uh, as I will, sh uh, you know, discuss later, this, this is nothing new in our history. After 1921, there's been episodes of of multi-party uh, uh, present in the house. It was also remarkable because this was a Western party, wasn't it? Correct. Uh, so the progressive. Uh, uh, elected members in in, in uh, Western Ontario, but mostly from Western Canada, uh, their their home base uh, being uh, the Prairies. So uh, up to this point, the number uh, the Western part of the country usually sided with the Liberal Party because of their free trade policy uh, uh, and low tariff. So that was favorable uh, that, that that favored like, agriculture and the farmers. But uh, sort of the farmer movement sort of got fed up with uh, both major parties, cronies, what they called partyism at the time, and uh, the politician uh, sort of uh, decided to create a new party, which they call it's a loosely based association, which they call the Pro Progressive Party, and and the elector of Western Canada kind of 
filed in and, and supported that party in, in 1921. So that's why it's a major, major point in our history. It was a revolution in parliamentary business, wasn't it? Correct. Uh, because, uh, like I mentioned before, up to this time, you really had only two parties, uh, like the, the Majesty's opposition and the government. Uh, right. So uh, all the procedures and standing orders were organized around one leader of opposition, one leader of government, and 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 fighting in between these two parties. And you, because there was only two parties, if you wanted to express sort of dissents from the the opposition between uh, the, the dominant factions of parliament, you you sort of had to take a stand in the house and perhaps vote against both parties to support farmers or in the case of Quebec nationalists, uh, if you didn't quite fit within the two-party system, you might uh, take a position that was contrary to the liberals and the conservative, but you were tolerated within the two-party system because party discipline was just much looser at the time. Uh, after 1921, uh, this, this sort of uh, tolerance towards factions within the dominant parties diminished greatly. And as I show in my book, this is partly a consequence of the modification of, of rules of parliament, but I'm sure I'll have occasion. To... We'll get to that. We'll get to that. I want to talk. I mean, normally I, I ask this question at the end of the, of the interview, but um, it is so important for our listeners to understand um, the, the signature Champlain Society question always is, how did you do your research? What research, uh, what research material, raw material is out there? In your case, you decide to understand the levels of party unity in Parliament between 1867 and 2015. How did you go about doing this? Well, I was trained in the United States by scholars who study uh, legislative, legislative voting in Congress from an historical and institutional perspective. And after my PhD, I, I spent some time in Norway. I was supposed to be working on some algorithm to analyze political speech in the U.S. Congress. However, the data was kind of slow to come. So my Norwegian colleague, Bjorn Hoyland, and I decided to start fiddling with recorded votes, recorded divisions in the Canadian Parliament. There was one data set out there available with all the votes in the 37th Parliament. So we we started analyzing this data, and, and from this sort of, you know, uh, something to pass the time, uh, we, we, we embarked in a project of collecting all of the recorded divisions uh, in Parliament from the first Parliament to the 40th Parliament. How many votes is this? About uh, 17 to 1,000, a little more if you include the, the, the most recent Parliaments and the Senate, of course. Uh, individual vote, it's in the millions, but uh, in terms of recorded division, uh, over, a, say, a, a reading of a bill or a motion, that's about 20,000. There were more recorded votes at the beginning of the Confederation and, and also at the end in more recent time. And you put this in a, into a giant database. Correct. So I, I constructed uh, a, a giant database with 40 spreadsheets with all the votes that uh, uh, some, some were, were uh, coded, hand-coded by a, a, an army of research assistants in Montreal, Somewhere automatically scraped uh, by algorithm uh, directly from uh, the parliamentary answers that are published online. So either we worked with the books in library for the older votes recorded uh, prior to uh, 1990. And after 1990, we, we, we worked with the HTML files to build these records, these data files. So 
we have the votes of every sitting members of parliament. If you have an, an uncle or an aunt that sat in parliament, uh, you can go and look at how they voted throughout their career. How long did it take you to do this? The collecting the votes probably around five years and, and then another five years to write the book. It's a remarkable piece of work. Thank you. John MacDonald often complained that there were too many loose fish in Parliament. Did he have a hard time in controlling his caucus? Did the Liberals uh, under Dorion or Brown or Blake or Laurier have the same trouble? At the time of Confederation, both Conservative and Liberals had a lot more independence from their party, from their caucus. Uh, they were usually elected because of their own reputation and their writing, uh, not necessarily because of the party label. Uh, and once in Parliament, these men, because let's, let's face it, they were all white males, tended to be more independent-minded. They were more difficult to control, and that's why MacDonald called them loose fish. Uh, now, both parties had an important number of leaner uh, or independent supporters. On paper, they were called liberals or conservatives, but when it came down to voting or supporting the government, they might switch sides dep depending on the issues. The liberal were mostly in the opposition during the 19th century, but they had their fair share of independent member, uh, members, mostly from Western Canada, as I mentioned earlier, uh, but also from Quebec, uh, as someone, well, Henri Bourassa would, would be an example of uh, a loose fish in, in the Liberal caucus. Your research shows that big changes in party solidarity took place in the first decade or so of the 20th century. How did that work? Indeed, uh, I find that the high levels of party discipline, or what I call party unity in the book that we observe today, were pretty much already locked in or present by the turn of the last century. In my book, I, I sort of explain this uh, by outlining four related factors uh, to account for the transformation. Uh, the first is that the loose fish that we've talk, just talked about began to more or less fall in rank after the introduction of the national policy, uh, when both major parties, the Liberal and the Conservative, uh, took clear position on a range of issues, especially the tariffs and free trade. So this crystallized party positions in the mind of the electorate. So now voters expected their members to behave a certain way if in the House of Commons when they were associated with the Liberal and, and Conservative. So Sarah, that sort of took care of a lot of instability that you would see in, in, in party unity uh, among the two principal caucuses, the Liberals and Conservatives. The second factor follows from the first one. It's the religious sorting of Catholics and Protestant MPs towards the Liberal and the Conservative Party. So this process began after uh, Louis Riel was hung in the fifth parliament in 1885. So although the national policy had solved most of the regional conflicts associated with building a new nation, some issues remain unsolved. Uh, the right of a French speaker and Catholic outside of Quebec continued to divide the parties internally and weaken party unity during certain important votes in the House of Commons. However, the decision to hang Louis Riel and later the selection of Wilfrid Laurier as the first French-Canadian Catholic party leader sort of precipitated a, a partisan uh, sorting in the House at first uh, among the elite where uh, Catholic members became associated with the liberal parties and uh, some Protestant too, but most of the Catholic became liberals and they, they were elected under the liberal party member. 
So this could have increased the cohesion, the ideological cohesion of the caucuses, because before, sometimes when a religious issue would pop during a vote, it would split both the liberals and the conservative party internally because they had a, a mix of Catholics and Protestant MPs. After this, this sort of sorting that culminated around 1900, it began to be uh, less of a problem because all Catholic members were liberals. So this partisan sort of led to the first real transformation of a parliamentary rule in the House of Commons between 1906 and 1913. So because the caucus were more unified ideologically at the time, the party leader uh, began to transform, modify the standing orders to increase the government's control of the legislative agenda. And these changes greatly reduced the uh, influence of ordinary members in the legislative process. Uh, members were now more likely to vote to the parties because uh, issues coming up for for a vote were more likely to be linked to the uh, to the government business and the confidence convention, right? So, in other words, the agenda was split between sort of non-government business and government business, more or less split evenly. And uh, voting on non-government uh, business was a lot more contentious. But after the reform, the government increased its control over the agenda. What happened is more and more the votes became linked to government government affairs and the confidence convention, right? So, so therefore you had more incentive to support the party uh, in these votes if you were a party member. These change greatly increased party unity, as I said. And what I show in my book is that not all members of parliament were happy with this new state of affairs, these new procedures, these new standing order, and some, mostly Western progressive MPs in the Liberal caucus and later the Union government, but also Quebec nationalists in the Liberal Party and later the Conservative Party decided to basically split and leave the main parties to create their own regional caucus in Parliament, which later became a full-blown party, such as the Progressive Party, or in the case of Quebec nationalists uh, during World War II, the Bloc Populaire. So what's ironic is that the removal of these factions precipitated the creation of a multi-party system, but increased party unity even more because it removed the dissenting members from the, the caucuses, the main caucuses. And that leads us to the, the level leader, we observe today. The leaders had to had to insist on more discipline because, ironically, there was less discipline. The Borden government was also responsible for creating uh, these conditions. You write in the book that the introduction of cloture, for example, also played a role. Yes, that's correct. So the emphasis on parliamentary procedure as a as a sort of a factor to explain the the presence or absence of a, a multi-party system in, in parliament is not an argument that that you find in uh, in, in most. Uh, standard textbooks explanation of, of how parties uh, emerged and developed in, in Canada and elsewhere. So my contribution in the book is to show that by sort of gagging these these dissenting faction by introducing tool like, like you say, closure, where basically uh, the government can can stop the debate on when it when it deems the, the debate to be uh, too contentious or they want to get their 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 sort of a their way across Parliament. These these tools were uh, were also uh, detrimental to the expression of dissenting views for members of, of of both the Conservative and the Liberal parties. So these members who might have had you know sufficient say in how business was conducted before 
these restrictive parliamentary tools were introduced, now found themselves in a situation where they, were, they weren't able to express their grievances in the House. So their incentive to remain loyal to the, the two main party kind of uh, was lowered. And, and, and that's, that's sort of the argument I make is that uh, mostly for the progressive, it started to make sense to say, wait a minute, maybe we can create our own separate party and ha have the balance of power uh, if we're lucky and, 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 and really get our way because playing the game inside the conservative or inside the liberal party, if you're a progressive, if you're a Western sort of progressive-minded uh, MP, it, it's extremely difficult because of, of parliamentary rules and party discipline. Let's talk about the progressives because as the 1920s progress, uh, the progressives are gradually reabsorbed into the two-party system. Do you see this as the strength of party discipline again being at work? How do you explain that? Well, with weaker party discipline, um, the, my assumption would be that the progressive faction would have probably been able to remain within the Liberal Party for quite some time. Uh, and, and because they would have been about able to vote their interests on questions of tariffs or freight rates, if you will. Uh, now, as you point out, several progressive, eventu uh, progressive eventually returned in the liberal fold in the 1920s, including Thomas Crerar, who was like a, a found, found, founding member of, of the Progressive Caucus in Parliament. But the most radicals of, of the progressive, the so-called ginger group, went on to form their own separate party, the CCF, while others joined the United Farmer Group. So it's not the case that everyone returned to the liberal folds. Some progressive uh, chose a different path. The fact that the progressive party refused to impose party discipline, one of the first order of business was, are we gonna have a whip or not? After the 1921 election, and they decided that they were gonna allow members to vote as they, as they chose to, uh, to have free votes basically all the time in the house. It, it probably contributed to promote these different factions, right? So as you, uh, in the sense that party discipline, there's a, there's a reason why the institution of, of whip, the whip system and party discipline has evolved organic, you know, in the history of the British parliament and doing away with that system in a parliamentary system has some major consequences. Now, the main point of your book is that uh, party solidarity becomes even more demanding as the 20th century progresses. If you look at Parliament today, when it seems as though total party solidarity is expected, how do you diagnose the Canadian Parliament today? Is there any room for dissent? Is there any room for oxygen in Parliament? What, what remedy would you bring to the situation today? Well, it's true. My, my colleagues, uh, Alex Marlin in his new book, Party Discipline, and myself, uh, we've gone, we have confirmed that basically now total solidarity is expecting, expecting in parliament in almost every vote. Uh, the same is true in terms of speeches, parliamentary speeches. Uh, my colleague, uh, Kelly Bliduk and uh, Christopher Cochran and myself, we, we've confirmed that when you look at the content of speech in parliament, they're also, also now mostly controlled by parties. It wasn't the case before. So not only are we talking about votes, but we're talking about what members are saying inside and in the case of the work of Alex Marlin, outside of parliament is extremely controlled by the party. Now, fundamentally, the problem is at the institutional level. 
I don't think we can go back to a time like in the 19th century where we expected uh, MPs to do as pretty much they please in the House of Commons because the, the institution was different at the time. The bills voted in the House were mostly private affairs and the, the government was really small. Like I said before, half the issues were, were of a private na nature and, and not government business in Parliament. So MPs also knew the names of their voters, the electors. They, they could make a difference at their writing level based only on their reputation. However, today, most voters vote for a party that makes programmatic appeals during an election. I don't know many Canadians, there are some, but that say, oh, I'm not a liberal, but I voted for candidate X because I like the person or incumbent X because he, she's doing a good job, right? Most people vote because of party labels. We expect candidates from a party to behave a certain way once in the House of Commons. So you you sort of expect because you vote on the program of a party and you vote for a candidate from that party, it so happened that if that party is in power, you kind of expect, expect the party to do what they promised they were going to do during the election. Uh, so we expect them to implement their, their policy platform. But we also expect MPs, because of our electoral system, to represent the interests of the geographic constituency, the constituents. This is the geographic plane. However, because of the programmatic appeals uh, and responsible government, uh, we usually see that MPs are voting a certain way uh, to support or oppose a government, and they rarely break a partisan, uh, you know, partisan directive from the whip. So if they do not share our ideology, uh, usually we, we would like to see our MP have more independence, right? Because we're like, I, I didn't vote for, for the guy, but I expect this person to show some independence. Uh, this will perhaps increase responsiveness to the writing's uh, interest, but it will reduce accountability by by sort of allowing MPs to break party line at their convenience, if you will. Therefore, I think that in order to sort of mitigate this trade-off, we need to, to change the, not the parliamentary institution, but rather promote a different kind of electoral system, like a mixed electoral system, if you will. If a percentage of seats for a party is attributed to uh, reduce the inequality between votes and seat, like a proportional dimension. Another proportion of yeah. seats represent individual NP who could vote for their district more often without risking uh, reducing the accountability. Uh, that, that, that would be a sort of, a, in my view, a, a nice compromise. This is actually what we observe in Germany, like uh, that has a mixed uh, electoral system. So the M MPs that are elected on the party list tend to be more loyal to the party and the ones that are same party members but elected on, on geographic uh, at the constituency level, they tend to break party line more often if they have a better link with the, with, with the population. Well, you raise a very interesting point. How, how do we in Canada compare with other Westminster systems? I mean, you mentioned the German one. Uh, that's not Westminster, uh, but what about Britain or Australia or New Zealand? H how do we compare in terms of the amount of freedom we give our MPs to express themselves? Are we the worst? Yeah, in related work, I basically show Australia is has more unity, but the, this is from a, a more, it's not from the overall history of Australia, but uh, Canada is pretty pretty much at the top of the list uh, with Australia in terms of tolerating the le least amount of dissent 
uh, in their caucus. So they have very high levels of party unity or party discipline, if you will. It's, it's so well uh, out. And, and in more recent part, I looked at their most recent parliament for my class uh, this summer. And uh, I saw that only uh, there was only one dissenting vote, not one division with, with dissension, but only one MP out of 40 vote, I think, uh, voted against the caucus. Everyone else voted with their caucus 100% of the time. And yet in Australia, we've had a number of prime ministers turfed out of office as a result of caucus revolts. Yes, yes. So that, that's a, I mean, the, the, the reform act of uh, Michael Chung would have tried to bring us more in that direction by allowing uh, 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 party members to, to sort of have a, a review of leadership if uh, enough, enough, uh, if they had enough support within the caucus. But uh, these reforms were never implemented. Uh, although the act was adopted, it was never actually put in, in it in place even by the conservative party. So parliamentary reform, in my view, has some as limits. I'll give you another example. So in the Senate, right? So we, we have a Senate that ha is, is populated with independent senators. Uh, yes. and, and they were sort of created uh, by uh, the tweaking of, of, of the parliamentary institution. We didn't change their really change how they're nominated, their, their, their recommendation by a commission, but it's still the prime minister who decides who's going to sit in the Senate or not. However, the, 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 liberal, the independent senator group and all the other groups now that are, that have kind of spawned from this reform, uh, don't have uh, official whips and don't impose party discipline. And consequences of that is, is a greater potential instability. We see it by the multiplication of caucuses now in the Senate, but also by the increased number of contact between lobbyists and senators, right? So that the senators can vote, pretty, they don't have to listen to party directive. So lobbyists now have a greater incentive to communicate with them independently. And so you can, you can think, uh, well, is this a good good for, for our parliamentary system, considering that senators are not elected, consider, considering that lobbyists are not elected, considering that they have the same power as members of the House of Commons. Actually, they have more powers if you think that, not the conservatives, but other senators are not bound by party discipline, they're not bound by the Convention of Responsible Government, and they're not bound by uh, principal agent uh, electoral relation as uh, as the House of Commons members are, yet they can vote as they please and they can introduce bill, they can speak their mind, they, they basically have more power than House members. So, uh, and it's just, so that I think there's just to maybe sum up there, there is certainly tweaking we can do to parliamentary rules to sort of uh, return to uh, introduce a new way of voting so that members have more. Uh, you know, there's less consequences to break party lines. So they might want to introduce a three-line whip system like the, like the Liberal supposedly, Liberal Party supposedly has, but that's more common in the United Kingdom where uh, the first line uh, of votes uh, put uh, are linked to the Confidence Convention, but the second and third line of votes are more, considered more like free votes of lesser importance. So in, in these contexts, you, you would expect more independence from MP, yet having this system doesn't guarantee that the party is going to cre creep in and enforce 
uh, indirectly like party discipline uh, because everyone is looking at an MP when he, he or she breaks party line, they have to stand up against the caucus in the house. And so the whip and the parliamentary leader, the prime minister, everyone's looking at. So breaking the party line takes some gut if everyone is, is sort of doing uh, what the party's supposed to, is telling them what to do. The We know that uh, turnover in the Canadian parliament is extremely high, that people who are elected to the House of Commons don't like the job and very often will resign their position. They will not run in the following election. Most of them will not do more than two terms. It's extremely rare to have people in two terms. Uh, one could easily conclude that if one is at all independently minded, the last thing you want to do is run for office. Uh, would you agree with me that this has become a pathology in our parliamentary system? Well, I think uh, I agree that I, the parliamentary career takes a, a toll on on, uh, on uh, a personal life. It's extremely it's a job that is, is extremely demanding, and combined with the uh, the demands from from parties now in terms of uh, they have to. to not only watch what they say in public, but now with social media and how they vote and how they, they talk to their constituents, it's it's not easy to sort of uh, display some independence. Yet there is there is some security in following the party line, right? I spoke to a lot of MPs uh, during my research, and what they tell me is like we actually like it when the party tells us to do something we don't want to do, because then we can blame the party say, well, you know, I would have voted this way, but yeah, and the party said, you know, and I, well, I'm a party man or I'm, I'm a party member. And that's how I, and whereas if someone breaks party, the party line, then it puts everyone else in trouble. Why didn't you break the party line? Like so-and-so. So, uh, that just maybe it's an anecdote, but it tells you that, uh, it might, it might seem very, very demanding to follow the party line all the time, but it actually has some advantages. We are stuck now, and we have been for almost 30 years, with a four-party system in Ottawa. Well, sometimes it was five, but um, the Bloc Québécois, the Conservatives, the NDP, and the Liberals. Is this? Do you think this is likely to be the order of things for the foreseeable future? Well, I, I, I think that you're, you you always had a lot of strong regional parties in Canada that appeared at a cyclical, uh, you know, uh, during a certain phase of our history at the federal level, not just the Bloc Québécois, like you mentioned, there were other parties. Uh, the Reform Party would have been another example, but going back in time, the social credit, the Crédit Social in Quebec uh, in the 60s, uh, are tied with the Diefenbaker minority and, and, and later the uh, Pearson minority government. And, and going back further in time, you have the United Farmers, the Progressive, the Bloc Populaire. They're not a, the Bloc Populaire was a small rump uh, in the federal parliament, but it's still representing an ideology that didn't quite fit with the party system. So uh, Remember, too, that in 2015, we were actually saying I wasn't one of them, thankfully, because I was too busy writing my book, but it might have been the end of the Bloc Québécois. People were saying that. Uh, yes. 
2011 was the orange crush and now uh, 2015 was uh, the Liberal were back in Quebec and the NDP was going to replace them. So, and then look at the situation now. So basically you have, you have to think of it in terms of the combination of our electoral system, federalism, and party discipline, all factors that are conductive to the multiplication of political parties in a parliamentary system like we have here with responsible government in the sense that in a two-party system, say the one you, you have in the United States, but that may not be the best example. It's a, it's a presidential system. But take, take the United Kingdom 30, 40 years ago when you really had an opposition between labor and, and, and the conservative and maybe a few Lib Dem in the middle, but the, the main parties were the labor and, and conservative. Uh, there are so many ways, there's the lines of conflict in a society to be able to kind of work in a parliamentary system with high party discipline when you have two party. It has to mainly be an opposition between the left and the right, if you will. If you throw in other, other types of conflict, like uh, it, it's going to become difficult for two parties and with party discipline to kind of pander to all the interests, brokerage all the interests in a two party system. Mm -hmm. So in Canada, what I argue in my book is it, we were, it was, it was possible to brokerage these interests once you had, when you had two party system, a two party system prior, prior to 1920 when party discipline was weaker. We tolerated faction like Henri Bourassa, the nationalist from Quebec inside the liberal and later inside a conservative party with Borden. We tolerated Western radical populist, uh, you know, uh, a progressive uh, within the Liberal Party and later the Conservative Party also. They were tolerated, they, they, they were able to act, but they don't quite fit well with the sort of blue Tory, red Tory uh, uh, and liberal liberalism uh, ideology of, of free trade that, that sort of defines the Liberal and the Conservative Party at, at its core, if you exclude the the French-Canadian sort of issue of, of nationalism there. But throw in the Nationalists that that are that that think Laurier uh, is is too much of a uh, someone who compromises too much, and they want more uh, for for Quebec. Then they won't they won't certainly won't find a place within the Conservative Party for a long time, and tr throw in progressive who, who who want low tariff, but uh, who also are weary of uh, are conservative socially. They won't really work well within the Liberal Caucus, especially if that caucus is is composed of, of, of mainly of French Canadian from Quebec, as, as is the case after Laurier. So what happens in this, in the, under these conditions with, 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 when you tolerate less, less opportunities, uh, where, where you reduce the opportunities to dissent, to express grievances is, uh, the, the party system, uh, will not sustain, um, uh, you know, these faction and, and multi-party will emerge. And, and that's what we, we observe in Canada. So, to get back to your to your question, uh, I don't I don't think that we're going to return to a two party system anytime soon with weak party discipline. That's for sure. You 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 indicated earlier that the German mixed member system, where a voter votes both for a geographically identified candidate for a riding and also votes for a party list might give more freedom for people uh, elected to the Reichstag to, to speak their mind. Um, is there, have you lost hope completely regarding 
parliamentary reform. There is nothing to be done meaningfully to reform the parliament that would allow for the parties to exist, but at the same time, that would allow for members of parliament to express themselves freely? Is there is there no hope for parliamentary reform? You mentioned Michael Chong's efforts of a few years ago. Um, have you given up hope on parliamentary reform completely? Uh, I wouldn't say I've given up hope, but I, I think uh, I see limits in, in returning to a, uh, a sort of a counterfactual uh, where we have caucuses that are more tolerance uh, uh, toward the member independence like I, I I seem that it's we've we sort of we're we're locked in in a path uh, in a de path dependence uh, uh, like a, a path of of greater and greater party control over mm -hmm. over members and to break away from this sort of state of affair uh, I the only thing I, I see is a like I mentioned, is, is, is changing the electoral system where you change the incentive structure. Uh, in terms of, of every example I have in, in, in my in mind is in the evolution of, of party unity in a, in a comparative perspective is always towards greater party unity, not, not the reverse, in right. the sense that you return to... Uh, uh, you know, uh, abolishing party, except the Canadian Senate, where you abolished the party. That's that's an interesting case study. But like I said, that now in the Senate, look at what's going on. People are are forming parties because they realize having a bunch of independent members is not the solution to uh, yeah. to, to all of our problems. It would, I mean, certainly, I I I would I would rather have members of Parliament expressing their view. Uh, Maybe follow the party line during votes, but uh, why? Why do they have to also be careful when they speak now, and they can't deviate from the party line even in their speeches? Is this necessary? Uh, we have to remember that those politicians, uh, you know, they they chose to uh, to join parties. Maybe they shared and to, uh, they're enthusiastic about the ideology of the party. So there, we we would rather have them show independence, but in, in reality, the members of parliament are quite happy representing the views of their party and following the party line because they share the ideology. Who are we to say that this is wrong, right? But it does make politics more boring, does it not, Jean-Francois? <laughs> does it make politics? I, I, don't, I don't believe it. I mean, look at what's going on right now in the world. Like We certainly have, uh, uh, I think, uh, more than... Uh, share a fair share of, of problem to deal in parliament that makes it interesting we don't need to throw in a instability <laughs> and uh shifting coalition like you had in the french third republic that was very uh, yes. or in italy uh, a few years back where uh members switch party uh, every other week and and what you, you you're left with is a is a non non-function in parliament and an insta unstable institution so maybe there is something to treasure in the current system. If it's not very interesting, at least it's predictable. Yeah, and I like remember we're we're also right now we're under minority uh, parliament. It's been more uh, in sort of a more frequent in in the last in the last uh, you know in the last twenty years or so. And and if you if you go back to 
say the years leading up because we're in the history podcast you go back to the years leading up to confederation the main grievance of mcdonald and cartier and brown and the father of confederations was that the united canada's legislative assembly was highly unstable because there were too many loose fish coalition yes. were unstable uh, government would, uh, would fall over one or two defection the only time that this happened in our history is the second parliament following the Pacific Railways scandal that led to the third right. third parliament, right? The election of the liberals. But that's amazing if you think like this problem of instability was that was endemic ten years before was solved by eighteen seventy whatever five or seventy nine. And and the and and now you're 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 we're in a situation where there we're one of the few countries parliamentary system in the world that doesn't have any coalition, formal coalition at the federal level when we have minority governments, right? That's that's right. something that's particular to Canada. If you compare to England, for instance, there are coalition, formal coalition when there's a hung parliament that happens sometimes here. We always have one party government, right? And under minority government. And, and yet the, the government lasts on average about a year and a half, close to two years. Yes. And yes. the length of those agreements in other, in elsewhere in the world, and even in the provinces, is never more than about three years. So we we, we do have a lot of stability in our parliamentary system, uh, perhaps because party discipline is so high. Now, does it does it mean that we have to have total and Soviet-like discipline within the parties? Of course not, right? Uh, I you know it's it, I think uh, it's it's the parties right now are dealing in with a new environment of, of, of social media. And I, I hate to blame the, the journalists and the communication, but it, it is true now that you, you say something stupid, it's frontline. It can be retweeted a thousand yes. times, becomes viral. And so the parties have a, have a strong interest in controlling the message. It wasn't like uh, in, in my in my grandparents' days where, you know, whatever went down in Le Bud's Fleuve would remain in La Bud's Fleur, they won't get to be national news. Your book certainly helps put things in perspective. Thank you very much for this interview. Thank you. My guest today was Jean-Francois Godbout. His book is Lost on Division, Party Unity in the Canadian Parliament, and it is published by the University of Toronto Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on September 16th, 2020, by our skilled producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.